KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, how Americans are fighting back to protect abortion rights. Now it's all up to the states where grassroots groups are preparing an enormous logistics operation to move people across entire regions of the country that are about to go dark on abortion. Amy Littlefield will report She's the nation's abortion access correspondent. Also, why did we stop believing that people can change? Don't we want people who did bad things or supported Donald Trump to understand their errors and change their ways? Rebecca Solnit will explain how people change and why we care. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, that leak of the Supreme Court draft decision repealing Roe v. Wade is a disaster for women, but it's a gift to Democrats in the upcoming midterms. It's an opportunity to win close races in swing states and other states as well. We need your report on how things have changed in the midterm outlook and where they have changed. Uh, Let's start with the close races in the important swing states like Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Republicans are saying, uh, and this is a little bit of whistling by the graveyard, but Republicans are saying it really is going to take a second place in voters' mind to the rate of inflation. Democrats are saying this is such an abrupt uh, revocation of what uh, most Americans thought was a settled, established right that it will uh, really motivate all kinds of people either to turn out to the polls when they wouldn't, uh, and that refers especially to young people, minorities, single women, and cause some voters who might otherwise vote Republican to, uh, you know, vote Democratic as a result. Uh, I I just actually have been researching some of the -the on-the-ground findings in, uh, in a couple of swing states, notably Nevada and Arizona. Now, Nevada, in some ways, should really be the acid test for the question of inflation or abortion, uh, why are we voting and what, what's motivating us. On the one hand, the New York Times produced a table showing uh, just shortly, you know, the, the most recent polling before uh, the Alito draft leaked, of uh, support and opposition to abortion uh, in each of the 50 states. Now, Nevada is a, uh, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas state. (laughs) It's not exactly a state where the the notion of government regulating your private conduct has much sway. And indeed, uh, the uh, pro-choice side in Nevada, uh, according to the uh, poll that the New York Times cited, uh, has more supporters than the anti-choice uh, side by a margin of 31 percentage points. Aye, aye, aye. That is huge. Yes. On the other hand, uh, a recent national survey found that monthly rents had risen by 11% nationally over the past year. Well, in Clark County, Nevada, which is Las Vegas and its suburbs, which is home to most of Nevadans, Uh, the rate of rent increases over the past year has gone up by 38%. So choose your statistic. What is bothering voters? Now, uh, anyone who 
really follows politics knows that uh, Nevada and Arizona narrowly went for Joe Biden in 2020. And uh, all those states have narrowly elected Democratic senators and governors. Uh, And a lot of that is because of the rather heroic uh, hotel employees union, which uh, reached out in in both states. They were the only group that was really knocking on doors in 2020 because as a result of their work in hotels, they had all kinds of special health protocols and equipment that made made it safe for them to go out in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, So all by their lonesome, they pretty much knocked on three quarters of a million doors in each state. And since these are small states, that's a big deal. Uh, They're at it again. And I was talking to some of these folks and what they found was that not surprisingly, voters are very upset about the rising costs of rent, gas, food. uh, And a lot of them, even though they may be Democrats are blaming President Biden because they actually don't know who the hell else to blame. Uh, and they are outraged by the Supreme Court decision. So uh, I, I think this is the kind of situation which my grandmother would have summed up by saying, go figure. Uh, it's, uh, but th- this, is, this is clearly, um, we, we have in essence two offsetting game changers out there. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Democratic ground game uh, has got to, be making, you know, an economic case for the administration, I would point out that inflation is just as high across the European Union, which suggests that national policy has very, very, very little to do with uh, the current round of high inflation. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, even union movements that historically you wouldn't think would be uh, really pushing uh, on uh, a woman's right to choose and abortion rights, really promoting that. I think you're going to be seeing that among them too. Uh, it's in many ways the only way uh, the Democrats have a chance of holding on to power in the midterms. So the Democrats need to make the most of Republican support for ending abortion in all the key swing states. What about the deep blue states like California? Is there any way the abortion issue could change things here? Sure, there are swing congressional districts in California. There are two Republican districts in Orange County, which I think are up for grabs uh, in uh, uh, 2022, precisely because of the abortion issue. Those are districts that Democrats held lost in uh, the 2020 election, but I think can be won back in uh, 2022. So too the district on the north side of LA County, uh, Lancaster, Palmdale area, where the Republican won by a sliver in 2020, and I think has a good chance of being ousted. So, you know, I mean, yes, it does have an effect in California. And plus which the legislature, which is of course, heavily, heavily democratic, more than three quarters Democratic in in each house is probably going to put a referendum on the ballot that enshrines the right to choose, which was put into law in 1967, put it into the state constitution. I am now told that the pro-choice forces in Alabama may put, uh, in Alabama, excuse me, in Arizona may put uh, a similar, uh, in this case, initiative on the ballot in Arizona as well. 
Also, a, a referendum that has a clear yes or no choice on abortion rights all, usually has the effect of increasing turnout. It sure does. And particularly <clears throat> since the Democrats are concerned about what had been declining support among younger voters. Joe Biden's approval rating uh, about a month or so ago among voters under 30 was about 25 percentage points lower than it had been in the year previous. So what's going to get those voters of prime childbearing and need contraception and sometimes uh, elect to have an abortion and want the right to choose an abortion? What's going to get those voters to the polls who otherwise would have stayed home? So this works with several distinct constituencies for Democrats, particularly, I would say, among the young and among maybe, you know, professional women who might be independent or even Republican, but who cannot abide the notion of the government telling uh, telling them what they can do with their bodies. These are the famous suburban Republican women. Yes, it's them. One footnote, question. You said California made abortion legal in 1967. Who was the governor who signed that law? None other than Ronald Reagan, which was, I am sure at that point, the consensus position of the Hollywood world from <laughs> which he emerged. And really, you know, the pushback on a woman's right to choose didn't really, uh, you know, start in this country until obviously Roe was decided 49 years ago in 1973. But if you look at the public opinion polling, it's not Catholics, it's not rank and file Catholics who are against a woman's right to choose. It's more Protestant evangelicals uh, who had no particular position on this until the mid seventies. And for them, it was more an issue of showing that they were opposed to feminism and that it was destabling a patriarchal order. So they opposed it on, uh, on that ground, and they are still far and away the, the major group within uh, the anti-choice constituency. So we've talked about some of the swing states. We've talked about the deep blue states. What about, what about Florida, very important state, which has a potential Republican alternative to Ronald Reagan and Governor Ron DeSantis? Where does abortion stand as an issue in Florida? Well, uh, in the New York Times compendium of state polls, uh, there was as much support for choice as there was uh, for anti-choice, a slight preference towards choice, actually, if I remember correctly, uh, in Florida. Uh, They have recently passed, and Ron DeSantis has signed a law uh, which uh, forbids abortion after 15 weeks. Now, the interesting thing is that this is not enough uh, for uh, the Trumpian right, who everywhere is pushing more for like six weeks, or maybe a flat out ban, maybe with exceptions for rape, incest, health of the mother, whatever. And I think the Santos is probably calculated that uh, he can get away with 15 weeks. If he's running for president, which he is, the ideal thing would be to move to maybe something like uh, outlawing abortion after six weeks. But that would also endanger, I think, his chances of reelection uh, for governor this year, which are pretty good right now. So he's got a bit of a conundrum, and we can only wish that he has more and more and more serious conundrums uh, in his near future. I just saw a, an interesting little item that Senator Marco Rubio, also of Florida, <clears throat> is proposing a federal law to punish corporations 
who pay to fly their employees to to states where abortion is legal. Uh, He says, quote, our tax code should be pro-family. Instead, too often our corporations subsidize the murder of unborn babies, close quote. My uh, quote, my bill would make sure this does not happen, close quote. So here he wants to penalize not women who get abortions, not doctors who provide abortions, but corporations who provide transportation rebates to their employees. It's an interesting switch of focus here. Well, it, it, it draws on distinct strands of populism. Uh, obviously, it is not popular in the least uh, to penalize women. Uh, it is probably would really upset those Republican women we talked about if they penalize doctors. But everybody hates corporations <laughs> from you know a range of perspectives, be it for the uh, ec- economic injustice that they inflict or for the fact that many of them are have to be sufficiently responsive to uh, their shareholders and their workers that they embrace certain forms of social, but not economic uh, humanism and liberalism. And so, uh, yeah, I think Rubio thinks he's, he's probably squared a circle here. Uh, of course, if he was really pro-family, he would have supported uh, the child tax cut and, uh, you know, aid for child care and things that the Republicans... Early childhood education, universal pre-K. Yeah, yeah, right. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's obviously, uh, you know, there are limits to how, just how pro-family uh, he can be. Getting back to the old Barney Frank line that the Republicans uh, are pro-life uh, until the baby is born and then uh, are indifferent to the fate of the child thereafter. So, So we've talked about the congressional races in the swing states. But of course, now that if indeed the Supreme Court rules as this leak says they're going to rule, that moves the focus to the state legislatures. And there are some state legislatures where control is very close. And now these have to become a focus. In Arizona, for example, The legislature has a one-vote Republican majority in both chambers. This is a result of just a couple of thousand votes, a couple of thousand more Democratic votes in the key state Senate and state legislative districts in Arizona could lead to a change in the laws in uh, Arizona if we can also elect a Democratic governor there. Minnesota is a key abortion provider right now for women in the Dakotas where it's banned. Minnesota has a Democratic governor, a Democratic majority in the state house, but a state Senate that Republicans control by three votes. So this is another place where a few key districts could flip the whole state government and make sure that abortion is secure. So similar fights are underway in lots of other places, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. Usually we don't pay much attention to state legislative races, but we've learned that was a mistake. We have to, this year we have to, and we have to pay attention to governor's races in states we may not usually pay attention to governor's races in. Everybody is obviously focused on Georgia for very good reasons. I note in Nevada, uh, the uh, lead Republican nominee, fully aware that he's in an overwhelmingly pro-choice state, says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, quote, pro-life, I'm anti-choice, but uh, I know that voters passed a referendum here, uh, essentially legalizing abortion in 1990, and I'm not going to touch that. Arizona is even weirder. Arizona 
the the clear leader on the Democratic side, and, and these are states where the primaries have not taken place yet, uh, is the state secretary of state, Katie Hobbs, uh, who was clearly pro-choice. The clear leader on the Republican side is a former Fox News, local Phoenix Fox News anchor person, Carrie Lake, who, who left the station because it didn't say that Trump really was the winner of Arizona. Uh, and she uh, is adamantly, uh, you know, anti-choice. Uh, so there'll be a, a, a contest. I should also add that she says that she thinks her Democratic opponent to be, Carrie Lake, should actually be imprisoned for rigging the election for Biden. So that will probably be some interesting <laughs> debates the two of them might have. Man. These are real choices at the legislative level and at the gubernatorial level and at the Senate level where the, the whole issue of uh, women's bodily autonomy and choice uh, is going to be a bigger deal than it has ever before been in American politics. And I learned more about this from the States Project online at statesproject.org. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in California, a regular feature of this broadcast. This week, hundreds, thousands of workers at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center are on strike for fair wages, safe staffing, and better conditions in the workplace. Members of Service Employees International Union, SEIU, United Healthcare Workers West. First time there's been a strike of, of these workers in several decades. They walked off the job at 5 a.m. Monday, They'll man picket lines through 7 p.m. Friday, unless the hospital signs a contract before that. Uh, the issue here is, first of all, money. Uh, the workers want an 8% wage hike during the first year of their new contract and 6% in each of the two subsequent years. Right now, the lowest paid workers, the, this is the union that represents nursing assistants, surgical technicians, transporters, uh, uh, food service technicians. These are not the nurses. This is the one big step down. The lowest paid workers there get $17 an hour. The minimum wage in, Cal in Los Angeles is $16 an hour as of July 1st. Um, and the union wants the lowest pay to go up to $25 an hour. They also point out that Cal OSHA has issued seven citations to Cedars-Sinai for violating OSHA regulations designed to protect workers uh, from COVID. Uh, so they've got safety concerns, they've got wage concerns, and of course, they point to the inflation and the high cost of living and staffing. There don't, there aren't enough workers that Cedars has hired, so they're all doing this overtime they don't want. Uh, what do you make of the strike at Cedars? Well, they're actually, I mean, we've been focusing on the number of uh, organizing drives going on, but the number of strikes around the nation is definitely rising as well. That's the first point. The second point is Cedars is the hospital for the LA very rich. I mean, what can I say? When, when Frank Sinatra had his final heart attack, that's where he died. This is where, <laughs> this, this is where people of great wealth uh, go uh, you know, to either uh, be cured or not. May uh, I just interrupt on this point yeah. with a brief anecdote? When Gore Vidal moved back from his lavish estate in Ravello, Italy, to Outpost Drive uh, in Los Angeles, he was asked why he moved back to L.A., and he said, I have entered the Cedars-Sinai years. There you go. From Gore Vidal to Frank Sinatra, 
this is a hospital that can afford to pay their workers a living wage. News of the class struggle in California, a regular feature of this broadcast with Harold Meyerson. Read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. How Americans can fight back to protect abortion rights. The Supreme Court, in that leaked opinion overturning Roe v. Wade, did not say abortion is banned in America. The court majority said there is no constitutional right to abortion, so it's up to the states. State governments can protect abortion rights or they can ban them. So the battle for abortion rights now is in the states. And what does that mean for us? For comment and analysis, we turn to Amy Littlefield. She's the nation's abortion access correspondent and a journalist who focuses on reproductive rights, healthcare, and religion. Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, John. Well, let's note that the abortion rights battle started not in Congress, not at the Supreme Court, but in the states, the big states that passed abortion rights before 1973. And that's what finally got to the Supreme Court and culminated with passing Roe v. Wade. And then the southern states started cutting back on abortion rights. And then that finally got to the Supreme Court now. So really, it's always been about the states. Congress could act, Congress could pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which would protect the right to legal abortion in every state. The vote in the Senate will be, I understand, on Wednesday. Uh, we go live before that vote will be taken, but we don't expect it to pass because it would require the filibuster to be suspended, and our friends Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have said they are not going to vote to suspend the filibuster to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. So that's not going to happen. So the states. Let's talk briefly about the political battles which are underway in the states. What, what are some of the important ones we, we should know about? Well, I think in the immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision becoming official, right? So that hasn't happened yet. We have right. a draft opinion that's been leaked. In the coming weeks, the Supreme Court's actually going to make that decision official. When that happens, what we can expect to see is a country divided and states heading rapidly in two completely separate directions. So we expect that about 26 states, so about half the country, will either ban or heavily restrict access to abortion altogether. So these are states that will seek to make abortion a crime once again, in many cases, right? And then we'll see the remaining states in the country to some degree working to shore up abortion access. And there have been a lot of encouraging proactive efforts at the state and even at the city level to preserve abortion access, to shore up clinics, to create the infrastructure that's going to be needed to receive a huge influx of patients from other states and to make that travel and 
childcare and all of the various other um, elements of, of logistical <laughs> machinery that have to come into play there to make all of that accessible to low-income people who are going to have to travel in some cases across whole regions of the country in order to reach the nearest clinic for abortion care. So that's sort of the immediate impact that we can expect to see. And I think if you ask organizers who have been working in states, you know, especially red states, especially states that have been limiting abortion access step by step, law by law, waiting period by ultrasound law, by, you know, targeted regulation of clinics over time. If you ask those organizers, they will say the fight to preserve abortion access has always been in the states. It has always been a local battle. But the national movement for abortion rights has not always treated it that way. So the most immediate task right now is getting people who need abortions in states where it's going to become difficult or impossible to states where they can do it. So there's an enormous logistics operation underway, you have written in The Nation magazine. Now, we have Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is a wealthy organization. They have an endowment of something like $2 billion showing on their balance sheet. And then we have lots of other smaller state and local groups. What exactly is the relationship here? What does Planned Parenthood do and what do all the other groups do? Planned Parenthood is a tremendous political operation. And they are a tremendous healthcare provider and often a safety net healthcare provider in a lot of states. People go to them because they might not be able to afford any other option. And they also have massive name recognition, right? I mean, I think a lot of people, if they need birth control or they need an abortion, they're going to Google Planned Parenthood before right. they think about anything else. So they're hugely important. On the other hand, I think there is a lot that Planned Parenthood doesn't do. And so there is a huge gap that grassroots organizations are trying to fill. And a major part of that is, um, is doing the work of what I think a lot of abortion funds and grassroots organizations would say is a true embodiment of the work of reproductive justice, which is making real a right that only actually exists on paper in many cases if you are poor or Black or someone who lives in rural Mississippi or the mountains of West Virginia, right, where your nearest clinic is many, many miles away and you don't have a way to get there. And so a lot of the energy and momentum of the abortion rights movement in recent years has gone into these grassroots abortion funds. And their work is sometimes pretty boring and unglamorous. And it is buying bus tickets, scheduling, you know, sometimes looking at the, the metro or the trains and buses in a city like Chicago or, or DC and trying to figure out how is this patient going to get from point A to point B, arranging airfare. I mean, I've talked to groups, um, there's an abortion fund that serves indigenous patients that arranged for a private plane to come get someone mm. at one point in the COVID wow. pandemic. I mean, there's a, there are groups uh, on it working in Texas and New Mexico right now because Texas is 
had this six-week abortion ban in place for eight months that are doing airlifts of, of abortion patients from Texas and bringing them to New Mexico. This is an enormous logistical operation, the likes of which maybe our country has never been never seen in this context before, at least, right? In terms of the, the movement of, of bodies that's going to be needed to, to make this right a reality. So this is going to take a lot of money. And you report in the nation something I did not know, that most abortions for poor people in the United States are paid for by billionaire-backed private foundations and that there's something called the Large Anonymous Donor, who's a well-known figure. Tell us about the Large Anonymous Donor and their role in this whole fight. One of the major strategies of the anti-abortion movement has been to try to cut off as much public funding of abortion as they can. Some states do pay for Medicaid coverage of abortion using their state budgets, but otherwise, because of the Hyde Amendment, this longstanding ban on, on federal coverage of abortion, private funding needs to fill in this enormous gap. Sort of the backbone of that is the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, which is known as a large anonymous donor. They are quite secretive. Buffett, isn't this the sage of Omaha's wife that we're talking about? This is the late wife of Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway fame. I mean, he's not maybe the first person who you would think of as an abortion rights and access champion, perhaps. The Buffett family has sort of a constellation of, of private family foundations funding a lot of, you know, reproductive health and gender justice causes. Um, you know, I've heard people refer to the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation as Vlad, the very large anonymous donor. Like that's a sort of tongue-in-cheek nickname for Warren Buffett in the field. And it's very hard to get people to talk about this because it's so, the, the foundation is so influential and so crucial and yet prefers to sort of keep itself out of the limelight. There's one other new billionaire who's funded this, the the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, Mackenzie Scott, who also prefers to stay out of the limelight, but it is publicly known that she has given $275 million to the Planned Parenthood National Office and 21 affiliates. So here's my question for you. From our point of view, having a couple of billionaires pay for all of this is not really a good idea. Exactly. I mean, and as one example of this, Another Buffett family foundation, Warren Buffett's son, Peter, and his wife, Jennifer, have a foundation called the Novo Foundation that was also funding a lot of reproductive health and justice causes. Well, a few years ago, they went through a restructuring. They laid off about half of their staff, and this sent shockwaves through the reproductive justice space. That's because when you're really reliant on a single foundation <laughs> backed by a billionaire and that foundation changes its direction or hires a new program officer or comes up with a different set of priorities or loses some money in the stock market, then entire organizations can be forced to go through restructurings of their own because of what one of the organizers at Groundswell Fund described to me as a sort of boom-bust cycle that really characterizes the way philanthropic giving works. Pro-choice Oregon is taking action to get out of this situation where, the, where we rely on a couple of billionaires. Tell us about Pro-choice Oregon and their political agenda right now. 
NARAL um, Pro-Choice America, which is the national organization that I'm sure many people have heard of, made a decision recently that it would disaffiliate its state organizations and would move to a chapter model. And so the 11 state organizations that were part of NARAL are now sort of moving in their own different direction. They've all rebranded. So Pro-Choice Oregon is the former NARAL affiliate in Oregon. Pro-Choice Oregon and their um, allies in the state of Oregon are really far out front, and they have mobilized to get the state legislature to authorize $15 million to create a reproductive health equity fund to shore up access to abortion in the state. And this is hugely important because we're seeing Idaho, for example, passing legislation that goes rapidly in the other direction to try to ban um, most, if not all, abortions. We're, we're understanding that states in that along that coast <laughs> and the East Coast and certain pockets of the country are going to become hubs. They're going to become destinations for abortion access. And so the organizers I spoke to there said, you know what, this is really the direction that the whole movement needs to be going in. And, and the states, unlike Congress right now, are really a place where dramatic victories can be achieved. We've talked about the national political picture. We've talked about the immediate need for funding to get people to places where they can get abortions. And there's also the longer-term task, uh, what you call deep, slow educational work, organizing that will not only help people safely access abortion in the short term, but will change how people, especially people of faith, Think about abortion in the long term. This is something you know a lot about, the work being done by church groups, not only to provide uh, funding, but the vast time and energy they dedicate to shaping how people think about abortion. In the nation, you focus on a group called Faith Choice Ohio. You call it the future of abortion rights activism. Tell us about them. Faith Choice Ohio, this is another group that used to be part of a national umbrella called the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. They're now fully their own organization. And I attended a, a training that they did last September where they had about 20 people. Everyone was on Zoom. Some people were members of the clergy. They were even wearing their clergy collars, right? Some people were just sitting there in their t-shirts, you know, hanging out at the end of a day, ready to learn how to help people self-manage their abortions. And this training was remarkable to me because it was framed in the language of faith and religion and sort of the moral case for helping one's neighbor in a situation like this. And I think in one sense, this is really important because helping people get access to safe abortion-inducing medication is going to be a huge, hugely important part of the organizing in the pro-stro landscape. Unlike before 1973, we now have safe medication that can be used to induce an abortion. And so part of what this group is doing is training clergy members so that when someone comes to you and says, I need help, I can't make it to the nearest clinic that's four hours away, or I can't fly you know, to Oregon, that they have the resources and the training and the understanding to know how to help someone in that situation. 
But the other part of this that's so important is that churches have been the base of power for the religious right. And I think the anti-abortion movement has been extremely skilled at organizing in those spaces, at making sure that abortion is part of Sunday school classes and sermons and that pastors are talking about it from the pulpit. And this has been a decades-long project of, of reaching people in their places of worship and and in these like really important intimate spaces of their lives to you know preach about abortion and Elena Ramsey the head of Faith Choice Ohio was one of those people she grew up in Ohio going to the assemblies of God church and she would hear all this anti-abortion messaging that she absorbed until she herself was raped in college and and that sort of opened up a different perspective for her and so i think that work of culture change of educating people that you can be a person of faith and still believe in the right to abortion and even believe that supporting the right to abortion is part of your faith. That is a sort of granular grassroots work that I think really has to be done by organizations based on the ground in communities like Ohio. In conclusion, let's not forget that the right to abortion passed because of a national movement that was rooted in states and cities. And overturning Roe now may be a move that leads to a revival of that movement and its transformation into something stronger. Because after all, the great majority of Americans support the right to abortion. It's been about 60-40 in favor for, for decades now. In the most recent poll, only 8% of Americans said abortion should be illegal in all cases. So the great majority is with us. It is a grim time. We have a lot of work to do. And it's good to be in this fight with such good allies, the ones you have told us about and the ones that you report on. So thank you, Amy Littlefield. She's the nation's abortion access correspondent. You can read her new cover story, The Fight for Abortion After Roe Falls at thenation.com. Amy, thanks for your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Why did we stop believing that people can change? Don't we want people who did bad things, who harmed others, to understand the damage they caused and to acknowledge it and make reparations? For comment, we turn to Rebecca Solnit. She, of course, is an award-winning writer, a columnist now for The Guardian. She's also written for The Nation. She's probably best known for the book Men Explain Things to Me. Her two dozen other books include, most recently, Orwell's Roses. It's a book about politics and pleasure. We talked about it here. Rebecca Solnit, welcome back. Hello, John. Well, you have a friend named Jarvis Masters. He's been in San Quentin for 41 years. Most of that time he's been on death row, and he has a remarkable story of personal transformation. Yeah, and I want to make clear Jarvis's story is distinctive, but nobody should be on death row because death row shouldn't exist. This isn't a piece about prison politics, which is another subject. But yeah, but Jarvis went in there as an angry teenager who'd had an incredibly hard life and like 
picked up a gun or was handed a gun when he got out of foster care and told to like, well, since you have no means to make a living, come help us with these armed robberies. So Jarvis went to prison for armed robbery, it was sent to San Quentin at 19. And while he was there, when he was in his mid-twenties, he was framed for or wrongly accused of sharpening a weapon with which a guard was murdered. And actually, it's quite a remarkable story. The writer Melody Irma Child Chavez, who who I had met after I'd been very moved by a book where she describes her triple journey of becoming a death penalty defense investigator, a Buddhist, and... Uh, you know, very involved in her own neighborhood during the crack epidemic in Berkeley. But she was assigned to Jarvis's case, and she taught him what she was just learning, which is kind of Buddhist practice, meditation, ways to deal with angst and trauma and anger. And then he sent away and got connected to Tibetan Buddhists and became quite a renowned Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. A very famous Lama came and he took... Uh, the, the, took vows from him, you know, kind of vows of not harming, ethical vows. Pema Chodron, the famous Buddhist writer, who he calls mom, drops by whenever she's in the Bay Area and has written about him. And so he actually became a person who's done a huge amount of good. He's written a couple of books. He, get, You know, he's been a confidant and a peacekeeper, a diffuser of potential violence in uh, in prison. And also somebody who's been really able to reach a lot of kids and young people. He gets letters all the time and stuff like that. So he's become a complete mensch. The kid who entered San Quentin has been replaced by a guy who just turned 60, who is remarkable. As he said to me when I first met him, I'm crazy for not being crazy. And death row <laughs> is a really noisy, scary, difficult place to be. And yet he's funny and cheerful and uh, has somehow managed to keep a sense of hope and to build a remarkable life with a lot of friendships outside prison, a creative life, a spiritual life. But the prison system seems, of course, totally uninterested in this. I understand that when his case came up for review by the California Supreme Court in 2016, the judge's written decision brought up things he had done as a child in California's foster care and juvenile justice systems. Uh, let's talk about that. And I was shocked when I read the opinion because either he's guilty or he's not. And they brought all this completely irrelevant stuff in as though they were judging his character. And they were judging his character in his mid-50s based on things he'd done as a kid and like, I shoplifted as a kid, but I wasn't involved in the California juvenile justice system, so it's not on my record. And so the shock, there was two shocks for me. One, is, one of which is that they even thought that was legitimate to bring up. And the other thing was, essentially, he'd been in a kind of prison system. He'd been under the supervision of the state of California since he was a small child. So he, there was a record for crummy stuff he did when he was a kid, but it's such a ridiculous account. It even describes him taking a small amount of change from another boy and giving it back. And like, this is a death penalty case. You, you, you think this thing he did as a kid is somehow relevant? And there's other things about his childhood that might be relevant in this situation. Yeah, no, he had an utterly horrific childhood. He grew up in Long Beach with a uh, 
mother who was a dealer and sex worker and a lot of violence, uh, profound neglect, near starvation, a sibling who died possibly from that neglect before he was taken into foster care when he was still quite small. And he had one good foster placement. And then when that wonderful old couple aged out of being caregivers, he got put in a series of incredibly abusive homes. And when he ran away was when he ran away, was put in the juvenile justice system where the guards used him as a gladiator, tortured him and other boys, and he was severely, severely abused. So I found the Supreme Court decision interesting in that they held him responsible for things he'd done, but they somehow didn't hold the system they're part of responsible in any way for what they'd done to him. So there's always a question of like, who's who's blamed, who's held accountable, but who also can sort of say like, oh, we're not like that anymore and walk away. So the so-called justice system has refused to recognize the transformation of, of Jarvis. And it's not just the prisons. Uh, we don't seem to be able to recognize other kinds of transformations in, in lots of other areas, including uh, uh, politics. We put a tremendous amount of energy and work into trying to convince people, for example, Trump supporters, that they should change their minds about him and about the world. But then we accuse people who did change their minds of having had disreputable pasts, of having said things that disqualify them from our support. It's easy for people like you and me to hold progressive positions, especially if you've always been on the left, but it's very hard to change your mind. It's hard to admit you've been wrong. We want Republicans to change their minds and we should appreciate it when they do, not condemn them for having held positions they have abandoned. I think you know some relevant examples of this problem. Oh my God, do I ever. Of course, there's Elizabeth Warren who was born into a conservative, you know, Oklahoma family and was just reflexively a Republican as a young woman. And I think she deserves a lot of credit for looking at the data herself and realizing that poor people were getting screwed, poverty was being produced through the systems um, of government and becoming one of the country's leading progressive figures. But you you know, the, the Republican past was constantly brought up by people who preferred other candidates in 2020. You know, and I feel like people who've actually changed deserve more credit. Like I, you and I were born into kind of progressive Jewish families and okay, my case half Jewish, but you know, progressive on both sides and didn't have far to go. And I admire people who've made the journey. You know, I found the same problem when I was on tour for this Orwell book. People wanted to tax me with like, how could you write about this person who is anti-Semitic and homophobic, etc. And like he was as a young man, he reflected unthinkingly the values around him from his kind of upper middle class imperialist upbringing. And then he made himself somebody really different and somebody who stopped, uh, you know, dropped a lot of his prejudices, became a great anti-imperialist and uh, I think 1984's Goldstein is a sly critique of anti-Semitism as a kind of hysteria. And, uh, you know, I just find that people talk like we're soup, we're all the ingredients of who we've ever been, uh, everything we've ever thought and did and said has all been blended together and exists as much in the present as in the past. 
And we're in a time where we're all learning. I often feel like this era is like a graduate seminar crash course in understanding race, gender, and so many other things in ways we didn't before. Even people who are already feminist, who are already anti-racist, already queer positive, have learned a lot in the last five years. We've found nuances and shades, thought about discrimination in more sophisticated ways, thought about liberation in more sophisticated ways. So how do we recognize that people change? Of course, most of the people we disagree with about politics and, and life don't change. It's like they were, as you put it, carved from granite, carrying whatever beliefs and values they were launched with throughout their life. Some people get better over time, some people get worse, some stay the same. It's complicated. Exactly. And the, one of the problems, I think, is that people want a one-size-fits-all set of rules so they don't have to think. And I find a lot of categorical stuff is there so you don't have to think all people like this are this way. This is how it always happens. This country is always evil. This country is always good. And of course, we have the opposite. I do think we've seen a lot of people who've gone off the rails in the past several years to become members of cults, crazy anti-vaxxers, and that includes the kind of yoga moms as well as the right-wingers. And so people get worse, people get better, people stay the same, and you need a case-by-case -case basis. Jarvis's case, of course, is complicated because he's not gonna get exonerated because he's a good person. He'll only get exonerated because he's innocent if that happens, and we hope it does. I'm glad you brought us back to Jarvis. Jarvis Masters is innocent of that murder. That seems pretty clear, but lots of people in prison are actually guilty. I learned about this from Jody Armour, the USC um, law professor. Most people in prison really did do terrible things to other people. Of course, those people also had terrible things done to them as children when they were growing up. Some of them have changed. Many of them have served 41 years, like Jarvis Masters. But what about the people who are not innocent? We also need to create ways for them to acknowledge the damage they caused so they can make amends and reparations and rejoin society. My friend, Rabbi Dania Ruttenberg, has a wonderful book co coming out called On Reparations and Repair, looking at the fact that Judaism actually has a really great systematic way to repent, make amends, really change and try and respond to the harm you've caused, which is very different than Christian forgiveness, which is often the victim being told to forgive the person who's harmed them, whether or not anything has changed, and it can become a kind of bullying. And so we don't really have that. And of course, prisons exist almost entirely as punitive systems now. And a lot of very young people go into them. And I think you know, are degraded, are harmed, are traumatized, and sometimes taught to be worse people than they were when they went in. But the prison system, and even in its language, correctionals, uh, you know, the correctional system, penitentiary, etc., the language suggests that they're trying to change people. But it doesn't seem like in the tough on crime era, that remains of interest very much. I do know there are prisons that have therapists and groups and processes that do try and help people, you know, evolve. But overall, it just feels like we've had to kind of throw them and, you know, let them rot as a system. And also no way to receive people when they come out and help them make that transition often enough. 
What is this argument about how repenting is part of a Jewish tradition? Uh, according to Rabbi, Rabbi Danya, who knows her Talmud and is a great scholar, there are these very clear steps and processes for people to uh, apologize, make amends, show that they've changed. And it's really a series of steps before you're ready to be received back as not the person who did the harm. And it's kind of wonderful because it is systematic, it's clear. It's actually very generous and it suggests that you may have done harm, but you don't have to be that person forever. But it's also tough where it's not like Christianity where it's like, oh, but then, you know, something miraculous happened and the Lord forgave me. It's like, you know, Christian forgiveness is often about your relationship to God, not to the person you've harmed. And then the person you've harmed is often being told to forgive you whether or not anything has changed. And I've heard from a lot of women raised in conservative Christian circles about that kind of bullying that you have to forgive your husband's violence or adultery or whatever, because that's what it means to be a good Christian woman. And good Christian man doesn't necessarily mean that he has to make amends, repent, change. So Judaism has that process. I think American society ha as a whole doesn't. But this exists in much more informal ways. The way that we look at people and judge them, you know, I sometimes feel social media is just our way of having recreational judging on strangers <laughs> far and wide. And, uh, you know, and we don't really look at, are they the same person? Am I the same person I was 30 years ago? I know I've learned so much, even in the last five and 10 years. So we really need processes to recognize that people can change, that they do change, to support change when it happens, to encourage it. And I think part of encouraging it is people feeling like I can show up as no longer the person who said or did that dumb or harmful thing who learned and moved on. And there's a political dimension to this too, isn't there? I think that the left and the right have different categories of people they're eager to forgive. Of course, the right can't forgive high status white men, their sexual transgressions, violence, corruption, etc. fast enough, as we've seen with Donald Trump, serial sexual abuser. The left, I think, has been great in recognizing that prison is a completely horrific situation, that we should forgive people who committed violent crimes in many cases. But on the other hand, a lot of people on the left will not forgive someone who told an off-color joke or echoed the conventional views of their time when it was a less enlightened time in terms of race, gender, sexual orientation, etc. And that's why I reference the culture that most of us grew up in is that, you know, you can still see it when you go back to watch those movies that you might have fond memories of. One version of this essay talked about Purple Rain, a movie I utterly loved when it came out in 1984. And when I watched it again, the female protagonist, Apollonia, was so humiliated so repeatedly for laughs, I just found it unbearable and stopped watching. And it was fascinating to me, like, how had I so sublimated my own trauma as a young woman to find a movie that abused another young woman for laughs, so palatable, so that I enjoyed what was wonderful about it, which was Prince and his music, and didn't mind the other stuff, or didn't even feel like I had the, the right and the equipment to object to the other stuff. And then, of course, I watched it during the pandemic on my laptop and had to stop. 
we're a lot more insistent that everybody deserves respect now. We've had kind of a kindness revolution and maybe a, a dignity revolution and believe that everybody need everybody deserves respect. And that was not at all the case of the culture not very long ago. And of course, it's still not the case of right-wing culture. I, and I, well, I think a lot of us will never forget Trump making fun of the disabled reporter, mocking women for their, you know, their, what kinds of bodies they were for not being young. So it's all changing and we're all changing with it. You know, and so part of the question is, how do we recognize people have changed? How do we help people change, you know, or help ourselves change? And uh, how do we really repair harm that's been done by ourselves or by others? Rebecca Solnit wrote about her friend Jarvis Masters and about how people change for the New York Times. Thank you, Rebecca. You're welcome, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.